0: Welcome to Fact or Fiction, History Stuff for the History buff on HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Gibson, joined by my guest, staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey, Candice. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I am gearing up for my Christmas shopping. Mm. I always like to do it early and beat the crowds. Oh, you're better than me. (laughs) Well, I was thinking, what sort of job could I have that would give me carte blanche just buy just whatever i want. And i was thinking the more powerful you are, typically the more money you make. Then i was like, well what about the most powerful man in the in the country in the free world, the the US president? He must have just, you know, tons of money to work with. You would think. You would think. Yeah. And then i was really surprised to find out that's not the case. Yeah, not exactly. Presidents make uh now uh
1: it's about 400,000 a year, which i mean in scope comparatively in the private sector
0: it's not that much, it's not that great, I guess. It's not. I mean, to me, in my opinion, $400,000 is still a lot of money. Sure, sure. But But considering his position, yeah. Yeah, considering everything he has to do, it doesn't seem like that much. And like you mentioned, in the private sector, Bush is actually, or he was actually, part owner of the Texas Rangers. And he sold that a couple of years ago, and I think he earned like $14.9 million for it. And then Cheney is also independently wealthy. I think his net worth is around $30 million. And yet, again, $400,000, and then the vice president's salary is 208000 one hundred dollars.
1: Yeah, and talking about the president's salary, that hasn't always been the case. Obviously, it gets changed throughout the years to accommodate for inflation and stuff, but it actually gets changed not very often. Um, the last time it was changed, uh, Clinton actually made 200000 uh, but before that, like it hadn't been changed since about 69. So that was about 30 years that the president went without a, a pay increase.
0: Yeah, so in 69, it was 100000 And then Clinton signed legislation back in 1999 for the increase to occur, I think, in 2001. And that's an important caveat. The president can't increase his own salary when he's in office.
1: That's right. And that's a little different, actually, if you look at Congress, for instance. Congress can actually raise their own salaries. And uh, that's a pretty popular vote you would imagine. Yeah, I can't Congress. imagine anyone
0: saying no to that. <laughs> and for important and obvious reasons, we see why the president can change his own salary. But um, the first lady we've talked about before, she has no salary, but she gets a pension yeah. when her husband is out of office. It's $20,000 a year, which, you know, it, it sounds kind of meager, especially in comparison to your retired president's pension of 150000 And then he also gets another 150000 to maintain his staff. And you can even go
1: back, like, people ask, like, hey, that's a lot of money to me. So, uh, do we really have to pay the president that much? I mean, shouldn't he be in the job, um, to be a good public servant to, to the public? And uh, the actual, the framers actually considered this. And they thought, like, they actually considered, you know, looking at the possibility of, of giving legislators or presidents no salary. But at, if that were the case, uh, you know, it wouldn't really attract, um, people from the private sector who are talented talented people, and they're skilled, and it wouldn't bring them over and attract them to uh, politics and and that life.
0: That's a great point, especially if you think about the fact that it takes millions of dollars to even campaign for the office. That's true. If someone wanted to run for president, and there were no salary for the president, one would have to save up money and, you know, really be independently wealthy in order to hold that office. And it's funny these days, because, you know, we'd like to see equality, we'd like to see a, you know, a really sort of fair, even-keel person in the White House, and not many of us would get all up in arms for someone who was incredibly independently wealthy, who was making promises to help out middle-of-the-road Americans. It would seem like a big disparity. That's true, that's true. And,
1: and framers actually consider that it would actually incent the politicians to seek out corruption. I mean, I'm not saying mm. that corruption isn't possible today, <laughs> even with their salaries, but, but making no salary,
0: they would certainly want to seek out underhanded ways to do that. So I guess another argument would be that if the president had no salary, he or she would still have an expense account. And, yeah, that says something. And the president does have an expense account. he has free home and board. Exactly, he gets free home and board. And the White (laughs) House, which is a pretty nice place to have free board. Not too shabby. (laughs) Not at all. And the vice president's house isn't too shabby either. No. Very nice. Oh, gosh, it's this gorgeous Victorian mansion. I'm kind of in love with it, even more (laughs) so than the White House. But as far as their expense accounts go... That's pretty generous, too. Uh, the president gets $50,000 in expenses, $100,000 for travel, and then 19000 for entertainment. And... Again, pretty sweet little package. And the vice president gets $10,000 in expenses. So, and we know that entertaining, it, it may sound frivolous, and $19,000 may sound like an awful lot of money for entertainment, but it's really important. It's diplomatic, it's about protocol, it's ceremonial, it's really necessary for Washington.
1: And that's true, and especially considering uh, presidents have to bring around foreign diplomats and stuff like that, and so they don't want to give off the impression that America is poor.
0: So considering that some of the people who go on to become president are so independently wealthy we really do have to stop and look at a couple of historical examples and see exactly why people would choose to do that.
1: That's right and there are there are a
0: few examples of
1: people who were wealthy before they they entered into politics and you you know you question like why would they why would they like sacrifice a salary like a private sector salary and you look at the examples there um Andrew Jackson, for one, Herbert Hoover, and uh, LBJ are examples that they got a lot of money before going into politics. And Hoover is actually an interesting case. Uh, he was actually, you know, orphaned at a young age, and he sort of rags to riches story. He um, he was able to make his way into Stanford and get an engineering degree. And he he uh, the next few years, like I guess through the 1910s and 1920s, he actually. Got a lot of, uh, of private wealth through uh, mining engineering, which doesn't seem like it would it would uh, get you a lot of money. But at the time, that was the uh, that was the position to be
0: in. So it's funny that you should mention people who make the active decision to go into politics, because on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you have people who are born into nobility, and unlike the U.S. president, monarchs stay on the throne until they die. And the US president, well, that's not the case. Either he serves one term for four years or two terms for eight years, and then it's over. Yeah. And it puts him in kind of an awkward position afterwards. It does. It does. It's so funny. And it's almost like a mother watching her son get married. And then she's not quite sure like how much she can, she can interfere and say, um, I think you need to be doing this or I think you need to be styling your hair this way or I don't really like that suit <laughs> out. That's how I conceive of the ex president. Of course, on a much more important scale. And George Washington really set the precedent for the ex president. And I have to recommend a book for you guys. It's called Second Acts, Presidential Lives and Legacies After the White House. And I think this book does such a fantastic job of explaining the strange role of the ex-president or the post-president, really. And the idea that George Washington came up with was, I'm done with politics. I'm going to go home. I'm going to be a gentleman farmer. And if anyone needs me in Washington, well, they know where to find me. And they did need him, and so he went back, and with Hmm. a lot of grace and dignity, he served another military role, and then he went back home and retired. And I think that before Truman's time, on average, the ex-presidents lived about 11 years after they finished the office, and today it's more like 15 years. And again, that's an average. Someone like Jimmy Carter is still going strong, like really, really strong.
1: That's right, and he's still making a difference. He's in the public spotlight, at least, and, and promoting future presidents. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I think that the ex-presidents, they make a careful decision about how they want to spend their retirement. And I think that today, even more than in the past, it's important for them to be seen and they can fill a diplomatic post or they can fill a political post. And there's something that's really powerful and that creates a a resonating feel of unity. When you see a bunch of ex-presidents all together, you get Mm -hmm. the sense that there's still a lot of Confidence in that in that role, and there's yeah. still a lot of satisfaction of, well, I played this out. Yeah, and you know, it's funny talking about taking pride in serving that position. My favorite ex president ever, Thomas Jefferson, on his tombstone, it doesn't even say that he was president of the United States. That wasn't something that he took as much pride in hmm. as founding the University of Virginia, which he did after his presidency, helping to draft the Declaration and the uh, Statute of Religious Freedom in Virginia. Teddy Roosevelt also had a really interesting post-presidency. He was so popular and so young that he could have easily won a second term, but he chose not to run again. And instead, he recommended Taft to the position. And he did win, and he was president. But then Teddy came back, and he was like, I'm not so happy with the way that things are going. Mm. So he ran again. And he actually split the Republican Party ticket at that point between himself and Taft, and then Woodrow Wilson got in which is probably a good thing because of the diplomacy he was able to extend during his administration. But you don't see a lot of presidents doing that. Generally, when they're done with the office, they're kind of done. And they don't really advise at that point. Like you said, they have a ceremonial presence more than anything else. Yeah, it's kind of nice. You mentioned that that you see ex-presidents together. And often
1: that happens to be presidents that are both Republican and Democrat. It's kind of nice to see the bipartisan,
0: you know, Uh, bearing of the axe sort of thing. Exactly. And again, with Thomas Jefferson, my favorite, he (laughs) and one of his political um, allies turned enemies, John Adams, they were... Oh, my goodness. They were incommunicado for years. And then after they both finished the presidency, I think there was sort of a quiet understanding between them. And they had this correspondence back and forth over the years. And then they ended up dying on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826. And I think John Adams said that his only consolation on his deathbed was knowing that his friend Thomas Jefferson lived. And, you know, ha-ha, he didn't, but... (laughs) (laughs) but the office also takes a physical toll on presidents too.
1: That's right. And if you look at like I mean, imagine like uh Nixon for instance had had some hard times there in the last in the last months of his presidency and I'm sure that took a toll on him. But also if you look at perhaps um Reagan, he uh he maybe weren't, wasn't haggard after office because of political reasons, but the country watched as, as his health sort of degenerated, and he suffered from Alzheimer's, and he, he started forgetting, you know, even the fact that
0: he was president, and it's pretty sad. It is, and even to flash back to someone like FDR, and his health conditions. It's yeah. hard to see your country's leader incapacitated like that. But the fact that his mind was sharp enough to lead the country I think is a really, really powerful thing. It's true. So if you want to learn more about presidents, past, present, and future, be sure to check out HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.